0: National Parks Traveler,
1: where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Those who have ascended to the presidency of the United States are products of the environments in which they were born, raised, and educated. Their early experiences in life usually have had a significant effect on how they manage their presidency and subsequent policy and programs developed under their watch. Lyndon Baines Johnson is a fitting example of that. His presidency was guided in full measure by his upbringing, his personal experiences with poverty and shame and his observation of racism and hate. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This week, The Traveler's Lynn Riddick begins a two-part series on the unique LBJ National Historical Park, which offers the most complete picture of any American president. Guided by park official Brian Vickers, Lynn takes us through the site's two distinct districts, the Johnson City District and the LBJ Ranch District, to learn about Johnson's compelling cradle-to-grave story and the forces that shaped his life.
0: Interior Federal Credit Union is pleased to offer members up to $500 in closing costs with a new home equity line of credit. Now is a great time to apply for a rate of 3.25% APR before they jump up. Take advantage of low rates and a great deal at interiorfcu.org. Membership is required, equal housing lender. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join wild tributes for the parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org.
2: For the cries of pain and the hymns and protests of oppressed people have summoned into convocation all the majesty of this great government, the government of the greatest nation on earth. Our mission is at once the oldest and the most basic of this country, to right wrong, to do justice, to serve man. Johnson City, Texas
3: is a small town about 50 miles west of Austin in the heart of the Texas Hill Country. It's the birthplace of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the 36th president of the United States. Lively restaurants, wineries, antique stores, and the old Blanco County Jail line its main street and courthouse square. But naturally the biggest draw here is the LBJ National Historical Park, for it is here along the Pertinalis River where LBJ was born, spent his formative years, and ultimately retreated after his presidency. Lyndon Johnson was a complex man, thrust into what he called the awesome burden of the presidency under tragic circumstances, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. He stepped up to the task with monumental leadership skills, an obsessive work ethic, political shrewdness, and an unwavering commitment to bipartisan solutions to racial and social inequities. Many historians believe that LBJ would have been solidly ranked as one of the country's three most consequential presidents of the 20th century, along with Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt, had it not been for his administration's gross mismanagement of the Vietnam War. An unwinnable conflict that ultimately led to the death of nearly 60,000 American soldiers, created a great divide among Americans and a deep distrust of federal government that lingers today. LBJ has been described as manipulative, insecure, bold, intelligent, compassionate. The word flinty also describes him, meaning a hard and unyielding person. And a fitting description too, given that the Spanish word for flint rock is pedernales, which is coincidentally the name of the river that runs through the LBJ ranch. I caught up with Brian Vickers, Deputy Program Manager for Interpretation and Visitor Services here at the LBJ National Historical Park, to learn more about this unique spot where you can trace LBJ's ancestry and history, his birth, childhood, political career, retirement, and death. Hi, Brian. Welcome to The Traveler.
4: Thank you, Lynn. It's a pleasure to be with you today and and, uh, host you here at Lyndon B. Johnson National Historical Park. We're looking very forward to your visit today.
3: Me too. Well, um, first of all, there are two units here at the park. The Johnson City District and the LBJ Ranch, which is about 13, 14 miles away?
4: That's correct. Yeah, Two different units, two different districts as we call them. The Johnson City District includes our main park headquarters and our main visitor center. It also contains the boyhood home where Lyndon Johnson grew up as a young boy here in, in Johnson City. And then there's the Johnson Settlement, where his grandfather and grandmother homesteaded in the late 1860s, early 1870s. The ranch district, the L.B.J. Ranch District, includes the Texas White House, the residence of President and Mrs. Johnson. His birthplace, a schoolhouse where he started uh, his public education at the age of four. It also contains the famous cemetery where he's resting today with Lady Bird.
3: Well, I'm going to have you walk me around some of these sites. So where should we go first?
4: Let's go to the Boyhood Home. That's where Lyndon Johnson grew up from the age of five until he went off to become his own man.
3: Before we head off to the Boyhood Home, let's talk for just a second about where we are now in the Visitor Center. It has an interesting history, too.
4: Yes, our Visitor Center uh, is actually a, a, a modern building in the sense that it was created, it was built in 1969, first as a hospital here for Johnson City. And then in, uh, somewhere in the early 90s, the hospital district uh, went away and the Park Service bought this building and converted it into our park headquarters. All of our administrative functions are taken care of in the in the back area. And then we have our main visitor desk area up front where we invite visitors to stop in and get information on what they can see and do in the park, get maps, see some exhibits in our exhibit hall there, and just get an orientation on what they can do throughout both districts of the park, and that's where we're at in the visitor center at this time.
3: And it's interesting. Once you know that it used to be a hospital, you can see the complete hospital architecture, starting with the nurses' station.
4: Yes, it's uh, when you go down the hallways and everything, you see all these wings off to off the main hallway, and you think, well, this is very much it was a hospital because you've got a wing for baby uh, prenatal care, you've got a wing for the surgery. I don't know the complete history of the hospital, but I do know that President Ms. Johnson had a direct hand in standing up this uh, hospital district here and getting this hospital built.
3: Let's walk into the exhibit area first before we go outside because there's some uh, artifacts and uh, curios that I, I want to ask you about.
4: Sure, let's do that.
3: So we walked into the visitor exhibit area, and it's small, but I can already tell it's jam-packed with information. What, what do we have here?
4: What you have here is a, an exhibit that describes the timeline of Lyndon Johnson's life from the time he was born until the time of his death. And that's exhibited along one wall, his complete timeline of what he did, where he was, and what was going on in the world at that time, all the way from World War One through, of course, uh, World War II, the Vietnam War, and his uh, post-presidential years, his retirement years at the LBJ Ranch. And then we have exhibits along the other wall that really kind of uh, display, exhibit, showcase the, his major legislative accomplishments while he was uh, president. Some, and it's, it cites some examples of over a 1,000 bills that he pushed through Congress during the five years he was president. such th- And they're grouped by topics such things as the environment, foreign affairs, poverty, health, consumer protection laws, education. And that's what we have principally here in the exhibit hall at the main visitor center.
3: And one thing that caught my eye immediately was this suit that was worn by LBJ. Um, I, I know from looking at film clips of him, um, that he was a very tall man. I think he was 6'3"? 6'3
4: half was his uh, stated biological height. If you put shoes or boots on him there, we just kind of round it off and say he was 6'4". Indeed, a very tall man.
3: And when you look at the suit, you really get the impression of how, uh, how big he was, how tall, how much stature he had.
4: And that was a key part of his... He used that. He leveraged his stature as uh, part of his persona in his ability to influence people and wield his, his uh, persona over them and get them to do what, they, what he wanted them to do.
3: Right. There's lots of uh, uh, photos and film of him just sort of leaning down, talking into someone's face, and he was definitely a close talker.
4: Very much so. And that was all part of the style of getting what he wanted out of people. Very much so.
3: So tell me about this. It appears to be a desk, but when you look at it closer, it's a picnic table with the presidential seal in front of it. What what was this all about?
4: Lynn, this table is the actual table where he signed the landmark education bill. that was titled the Elementary and Secondary Education Bill of 1965. He did this right outside the uh, school building where he started his uh, formative years of learning at the age of four before he was really eligible to go to school. Out there at the LBJ Ranch not far from his childhood birthplace and the point he made at this table with his teacher who he had invited back to sign this landmark legislation
3: that photo there was a, a teacher of his
4: yeah that was that was the lady who was the teacher for grades 1 through 8 at this one room country schoolhouse called the Junction School right there in the park today at the LBJ Ranch but it was about a quarter of a mile from where he was born and that's her picture here, uh, her uh, uh, Catherine Diedrich Loney. And when he signed this bill with her president, he said, no bill that I will sign or ever sign will be as important, for." and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, will mean as much to all of American society. When he was asked by one of his biographers what he was most proud of as president, what he had accomplished when he was writing his memoirs, many people expected him to say his advances in civil rights. But he said, I'm most proud of my advances in education because that affects every segment of society, not just minorities. Certainly education helps minorities, but that education bills that he signed signed and pushed through indeed affected every segment of society even today.
3: And he knew that education was a way to lift people out of poverty.
4: Yeah, he said his uh, he quoted his mother as saying, "The uh, education is the passport from poverty."
3: So let's leave the visitor center and go see what's on the grounds here.
4: Absolutely.
3: All right, we just walked up the steps of Lyndon Johnson's childhood home. Uh, tell us about this house and the history of it.
4: This house was built in 1901 by a prominent rancher in the area who happened to be the county sheriff at the time as well. And it was quite a nice home for that era, just after the turn of the century into the early 1900s. The house was sold to Sam Johnson Jr., Lyndon Johnson's father, in 1913. At that point, Sam Jr., I'm just going to say Sam from this point on, he moved the family from uh, Stonewall out near uh, Stonewall, where Lyndon Johnson was born, moved the family here into Johnson City, and they took up residence here in this house. And it was considered one of the nicest homes in all of Johnson City. Uh, It had lots of features about it that uh, made it inhabitable during the hot summer months here in Texas, with lots of windows and lots of doors and lots of cross-flow capability for the air. And uh, his mother entertained here, His father conducted business from here, so it was a very the years the years that Lyndon Johnson spent here were very, very consequential for him in terms of the way he viewed the world in a very small, poor town, living in a rather nice house at the time, and uh, the house remained in Johnson family possession until he donated it to the National Park Service, again in the, the late 60s after he had left office as our 36th president
3: it's very beautiful it's very Texas Uh, how would you describe this architecture
4: well I uh, some people said it's got a little Victorian flair to it and that's that is correct it's got real shutters on it it's got a roof cap that looks like Victorian architecture or accents it's got a little courtyard and it was designed in the shape of a... With the foundation, the floor plan, was in the shape of a cross so that no matter where the wind or breeze is coming from, if you open all the windows and doors, get a nice cross flow there. 12-foot ceilings inside, which is very reminiscent of Victorian homes that, long before the age of air conditioning and heating.
3: Johnson City was named after LBJ's grandfather and uncle, is, or cousin, is well,
4: that correct? It's his, it was his... Uh, cousin once removed. It was actually his father's first cousin, uh, James P. Johnson. He founded the town in the late 1870s, and that's who it's actually named for. He paid for having it platted and surveyed out and established as a town, as a city.
3: Is there anything in the house that you find especially interesting?
4: What I find most interesting in the entry hallway was where Sam set up a home office. I believe this is kind of the 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 set the stage for Lyndon Johnson working from home at the Texas White House years later because he saw his father work from home as a state legislator, and as a businessman right here in the hallway. He had telephones, he had a desk, he had this space where he would invite men and uh, to come in and conduct business either outside or right there in the in the hallway. So I felt that that's that's the most interesting for me as an interpreter, is that. Those ideas translated later, transcended later into Lyndon Johnson's uh, establishing a office out of the Texas White House to conduct his business from. Lyndon Johnson was thought to have eavesdropped on his father's conversations here and uh, learning lessons from his father here.
3: Let's talk a little bit about his father, uh, Sam. Sam was a businessman. He uh, was a rancher, is that correct? Did he do cotton well, farming? He
4: they were farmers out there at the uh at what is today the LBJ Ranch. Back then it was not the ranch. It was just a family farm. His father and his grandfather farmed out there. And times were tough because uh is this area is still prone to Long periods of drought punctuated by heavy periods of rain, too much water at one time. And at that time, we didn't have the flood control dams on the rivers, like the Pedernales River that runs through the LBJ Ranch or the Colorado River up north of us. And so, you know, they could plant crops down in the river bottoms and then have a flood come through and take out everything. So farming was a very tough, speculative enterprise for men of that era. So his father and grandfather, through no fault of their own, uh, they, they, the farm failed at times. And so they would go into debt. And so times were very tough for both his father and grandfather out there at the ranch. And that was one of the reasons that he took up other enterprises here when they moved into Johnson City. Uh, he, he became involved in uh, real estate and insurance brokerage. And uh, even uh, he and Rebecca bought the town newspaper. And Rebecca ran it. So it was a two-income family, quite progressive for the time. Uh, Rebecca was not strictly a stay-at-home mom. I mean, she worked from home as well, running the newspaper here. And she tutored uh, ch- schoolchildren like she tutored her children, her own children. So uh, it was a very productive era for the parents right here in Johnson City, where they had a number of enterprises to provide for the family.
3: This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm talking with Brian Vickers at the LBJ National Historical Park, and we'll be back with more after this short break.
0: Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokeysinformation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix the depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to petrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O, Group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org.
3: This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm back now with Brian Vickers at the LBJ National Historical Park. So what do we know about LBJ's relationship with his father? Uh, You mentioned that he listened in on some meetings and conversations.
4: He very, yes, Lynn, he very much admired his grandfather's, or his father's political uh, philosophy and his style of legislating. Very much admired his father in that sense. Uh, they were not real close. He, Lyndon Johnson was known to be closer to his mother, in a personal, in a personal manner, personal relationship. But he he did want to succeed at being a congressman, eventually getting into politics, largely because he wanted to be like his father in that respect. His father, he he did have some issues with his father and the way that people treated his father when they fell on tough times. And uh, the banks would cut him off from further credit. And so in that respect, you know, he he had a hard time getting over the the fact that his father failed in his business ventures at times. And he swore that he would learn a lesson from his father and his grandfather in that respect and be a better businessman himself and it proved true so that was the lesson he also which is a very important lesson he took from this place here in Johnson City as well
3: I had read that um, with the highs and lows of his family economically he LBJ often felt ashamed and sometimes scorned because they were poor and then also he taught in Catula, Texas his first job was a teacher uh, in Catula and the students there were very poor. And these experiences, his working with those students, his seeing what his mom and dad were going through uh, with finances, really informed his views about poverty, hatred, racism, and shame. And those all fueled his domestic agenda as president.
4: Yes, very much so. That led to him declaring war on poverty years later during his presidency. And Lyndon Johnson saw all this firsthand as a child, and it shaped him to do something. Everything he wanted to undertake was to improve somebody's life somehow. It was it was an effort to improve people's lives at the very basic level so they can enjoy their lives and not have to be so concerned about tomorrow. And yes, he uh, he took that with him, and he always always felt like people looked down on him even as president. But I think that fueled him to try harder and do more and always keep pushing and pushing and pushing to improve people's lives because it reflected back on what he was most concerned about himself, uh, ending racism, ending poverty, affording education, just making life better on a day-to-day basis with the provision of electricity and running water and better roads. That to him, that was just basic human needs that every human, every American deserved. And he was determined to see that through.
3: He had an abundance of uh, empathy.
4: Yes, very much so. Uh, That was one of the things that made him so, that endeared him to the people around here when he was a Congressman bringing electricity here is that people say, well, he grew up without electricity. He grew up without running water. He knows what we feel and suffer daily. And he was very popular as a state legislator and then as a senator with his constituency because he was of the people. And that was a huge component of his identity as president when he would bring world leaders from uh, other nations not just to Washington, but bring them, bring them on out to the ranch and show them where he came from, what, what austere background he came from, the, the things that they had to deal with, uh, living almost hand to mouth daily during drought and very much at the mercy of the elements. And that was, that was, and then he would showcase that, see where I came from and what I've become. It's just through hard work that I was able to do this.
3: He seemed to have been just as down home as they come.
4: He was. He was. He um, he often would try. He would often compare himself to the East Coast Ivy Leaguers and talk about how he was so much different from them. And that was just a way of contrasting his style, his homespun style of you talk to people, you communicate with them, and you can reason things out. On a personal level.
3: All right, well, let's uh, take a walk to the next stop.
4: Let's go down to the Johnson Settlement and walk through there.
2: Okay. Hi, how are you?
4: This uh, path through here is used quite a bit, day use by locals for exercise, running, walking. So we get a lot of local use out of this trail through the Johnson Settlement.
3: Well, we've just walked into a pavilion structure enclosed. Um, Tell us what's in here.
4: This is what we call the event center because we can hold. There's there's a little room, a sizable room here where we can hold meetings and conferences and training sessions for park personnel. But around the walls is a depiction of farming and ranching in those early days, the late. 19th and early 20th centuries and when you look at these you can get a sense of what Lyndon Johnson's father and grandfather had to deal with in terms of drought tough life tough terrain poor soil to grow crops on to range cattle on and that's what you see around here in the development of the area in the true old west
3: what are we looking at here what is this we're looking
4: at a panel with Lyndon Johnson uh, close-up of his face. He's got a cowboy, he's got the stereotypical cowboy hat on, a checkered shirt, and one of my favorite quotes is underneath that, that portrait-like photo of him, wherein he says, a president does not shape a new and personal vision of America. He collects it from the scattered hopes of the American past, and that speaks to the way that his psyche, his understanding of America's past and how it can lend itself towards shaping a new future for America.
3: So down here it says he was our last frontiersman president.
4: We had a few presidents from from the West and from the Midwest and all that, but he was the last one frontiersman who grew up in, in a pretty hard life. Texas was still considered a frontier state when he was born, even though it was the 20th century, early 20th century. And he was the last president to come from such an austere background, uh, dealing with the hardships of youth in his young adulthood and carving out a living and a means of providing for his family here. So the, the attitudes and the, and the, and the uh, practices of the families back then very much had an effect on how he viewed the world and how you know, how he spoke, how he put his arm around people and persuaded them and how he conveyed a sense of, let's do this the right way.
3: So I found it interesting uh, when you look at LBJ's political resume that um, he had credentials for the presidency that really no one else has had. He became a U.S. congressman, then a U.S. senator, then Senate Majority Leader, then Senate Minority Leader, Vice President, I had those backwards, so he was the Minority first and then the Senate Majority Leader second. Then he became Vice President, then President unelected, then an elected President in a landslide, and then a President who opted not to seek a second full term.
4: That's unique, and that's an understatement. he had 10 years as a congressman and he was very popular with his constituency because he brought electricity here he improved their daily lives he ingratiated himself with his constituency in this small congressional district here in central texas that set him up for understanding the legislative process and he honed his political skills when he became a senator he was a senator for 12 years And during that time half of it was spent as uh, a leader in the Senate. As you said, Lynn, he was the Senate Minority Leader, then the Senate Majority Leader, and Robert Carroll, one of his foremost biographers, penned one of his books about LBJ calling it Master of the Senate because Lyndon Johnson was able to work the system to get so much done when he was the Senate Majority Leader. He worked across the aisle with both Republicans and Democrats and helped push a lot of things through Congress that a man of any less character probably would have failed at just because of his forceful personality and you need to do this because this is what's right to do and that was and that set him up for the presidency in the great society where he just carried on that that ability to get things done with the great society a thousand bills in 5 years Now, I've mentioned that 1,000 bills in five years once before in our visit here. Here's where I'd like to put that into context. There was only one other president in the history of the United States that was able to pin 1,000 bills into law, and that was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He had 12-plus years to do that. Lyndon Johnson did comparatively the same volume of work with a 1,000 bills in five years. So that gives you a sense of his ability to push and push and push and get things done, get people to agree on things. Lyndon Johnson would not have succeeded in getting those 1,000 bills had he not been able to get along with people in the opposite political party, because he generated consensus and partisanship, and uh, bipartisanship, bipartisanship, and he was very much a believer that we can reason this out and do what's right for America. You know, he would often say, it's the right thing to do.
3: And so, you know, talking about the legislation, just to review a few of the pieces that he passed during his administration, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1964, the Immigration Act of 1965, the Medicare and Medicaid Bill of 1965, fair housing, after the death of Martin Luther King. So some of these significant um, bills really uh, are still felt today.
4: Those are the big landmark bills, and that's what most people truly find remarkable about him, is that he was able to do things that for years had stalled out and never saw progress during Truman's presidency, Eisenhower, and John F. Kennedy. Getting those civil rights bills of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed huge, huge successes, 100 years in the making from the time the last civil rights bills had been passed uh, in Reconstruction 100 years previous. Medicare, going back to you know the Social Security Act that Franklin Delano Roosevelt pushed through Congress, it wasn't complete without uh, you know, a health system, universal health system that was through Medicare and Medicaid. You know, those bills alone, those civil rights bills and the social welfare bills would, would set him apart from lots, lots of different presidents. And he just carried that on to every facet, consumer protection laws, education, as we've mentioned earlier, uh, environmental laws, Clean Air Act, Water Quality Act, things we take for granted today, We don't realize how much he, what he did still impacts us today because we've just grown accustomed to it, take it for granted.
3: He wanted everyone to have a safety net in this country. Yes,
4: yes, whether they wanted it or not, he wanted them to have it.
2: My first job after college was as a teacher in Cotula, Texas, in a small Mexican-American school. Few of them could speak English, and I couldn't speak much Spanish. My students were poor, and they often came to class without breakfast, hungry. And they knew, even in their youth, the pain of prejudice. They never seemed to know why people disliked them, but they knew it was so, because I saw it in their eyes. I often walked home late in the afternoon after the classes were finished wishing there was more that I could do, but all I knew was to teach them the little that I knew, hoping that it might help them against the hardships that lay ahead. And somehow you never forget what poverty and hatred can do when you see its scars on the hopeful face of a young child. I never thought then, in 1928, that I would be standing here in 1965. It never even occurred to me in my fondest dreams that I might have the chance to help the sons and daughters of those students and to help people like them all over this country. But now I do have that chance. And I'll let you in on a secret, I mean to use it.
3: This is Lynn Riddick and I'm talking with Brian Vickers at the LBJ National Historical Park. We'll be back with more after this short break.
0: The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural historic and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org.
3: This is Lynn Riddick and I'm back now with Brian Vickers at the LBJ National Historical Park. Okay, so we've walked over to uh, the homestead area. Is that what you would call this? It
4: is a homestead, and that's the way I refer to it often. Uh, typically, it's called the Sam Johnson cabin, dog trot cabin, because it is it is a dog trot construction, and I can explain what that means. But this is the original cabin. It's been restored a couple of times, but it is the original structure here uh, at the uh, Johnson Settlement, the homestead of... His grandfather and grandmother in the late 1860s early 1870s. You know a dog trot cabin is actually two structures with a common roof with a breezeway in the middle and that's what they call the dog trot is the middle that's where the the dog would lie in the hot summer days with the breeze blowing through there and that's where people would set up their rocking chairs and sit there in the breezeway. Inside, one side of the cabin is the living, kitchen, cooking, eating area, and the other side is the bedroom. And that was by design. You didn't have your sleeping quarters in the same area where you had the, where you had the cooking and all that going because of the smells and the, and the heat and all that.
3: So this small structure behind the cabin... Sure looks like it might've been an outhouse.
4: That is the outhouse, the stereotypical outhouse where a pit is dug and then a structure built over it.
3: What about this little shed? And
4: that is the, uh, that's the shed where they stored their uh, fruits and vegetables. After they would harvest, they would dry them. They would they also served as a smokehouse where they would dry and smoke their meats and hang them, suspend them.
3: And what about this? Is this some uh, type of historic garden?
4: This would have been what the garden looked like Uh, with them growing uh, fruits and vegetables in there, principally vegetables, and then uh, about a five-foot cedar post fence around it to keep the deer from jumping in there and eating up the garden.
3: So when you come out to this cabin, what what kind of thoughts do you have?
4: I can imagine a viewscape that's got perhaps more trees than what we have today, but also has got high grass for the horses and the cattle, the longhorn cattle to graze on. It's a very peaceful area uh, late in the evening, or early in the morning when the sun rays are very low on the horizons and, and it's a very peaceful area to walk in the mornings, walk late in the evenings. And I think back how much different this area looked back then without the town of Johnson city around us and all the modern roads and stores and gas stations. It's a very peaceful area even today, but I, even more than I think, I'm thinking, boy, it must've been very peaceful to live here back in those days.
3: But hard life nonetheless. Oh, it
4: a very hard life. But you know, what I find remarkable about those, these people that settled here, even though it was very hard life, that's the way they wanted it. They did things their way with their own hands, their own intellect. They, they helped each other out as neighbors, but they had to have liked doing this to stay here and do this. Uh, It's not for the timid to do this, live this style, but the people who came out here, they were willing to risk that. His grandfather was very much a man who took risks with the cattle business. And that's what he loved, that's what he wanted. And Lyndon Johnson learned from that. He very much adopted his risk taking nature from his grandfather. His grandfather did that with cattle enterprises, taking longhorns up to the Kansas railroads. Lyndon Johnson did that with his great society initiatives, taking risks on his own personal political well-being, doing things, the civil rights bills, Vietnam, doing things that made him unpopular, but he said it's the right thing to do.
3: A presidential car collection, a working cattle ranch, and Air Force one-half. Join me next week as I continue my tour of LBJ National Historical Park with Brian Vickers. This is Lynn Riddick for National Parks Traveler.
1: That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Lynn takes us back to the LBJ Historical Park to complete her tour of that site in Texas. In the coming weeks, The Traveler will be launching a series of silent auctions to both raise money for our nonprofit news organization and to offer you some unique experiences and items in and from the national park system. Our first item will be for lodging at the Eco Tent Complex at Flamingo in Everglades National Park along with a boat tour from Flamingo. Keep an eye on The Traveler for your chance to land this experience. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
0: The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Traveler's podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Travelers' coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.